Hello and welcome to the Product Marketing Experts brought to you by Sharebird. I'm your host, Marcus Andrews, and today we are going to dive deep into consumer psychology and the science of product marketing. One of the things Alex and I set out to achieve with this podcast is the champion product marketing. And the huge part of that is not only making product marketing more popular, but helping standardize how we work. That's important. Being a PMM today is a little too much art. It's kind of shrouded in mystery. That's a big problem when a CMO is trying to decide what to invest in, or if you're trying to create repeatable outcomes, or if you're trying to teach the craft of your job to a new hire. All other industries have this. You wouldn't go to a self-taught surgeon, for instance, would you? We really have to get better at positioning ourselves and building a common language and laws of product marketing. And we should be really, really well suited for this. Uh, My guest today really believes very strongly in this, and he has sort of this big idea, which is really interesting, and it's what if we already have these laws? What if there isn't a science that already exists that we can apply to product marketing, just that for the most part, we don't know about it? Our product marketing expert today is Phil Agnew. He's the director of product marketing at Brandwatch. What's really, really interesting about Phil is it is a real student of consumer psychology and how that applies to marketing, specifically product marketing. He's done some amazing work on that at Brandwatch and also writes and speaks about the topic. Uh, he's, he's got his own really, really great podcast on the topic as well, where he pulls in a guest each week to break down how consumer psychology can relate to marketing. He's also our first guest with a delightful British accent, so that's fun too. Phil, how you doing? Really good. Thank you so much for having me, Marcus. It's good to have you. Thanks for coming on. So uh, a lot of the, you know, the questions and things I want to dive into are related to a, a, a great talk you did for the Product Marketing Alliance that you basically started off by saying that product marketers don't really understand their customers. Um, so first of all, how dare you? How dare you, Phil? And then second of all, I think you actually kind of have a good point once you backed it up. Um, can you tell us why you think that? <laughs> yeah, so it's always good to start a talk with something quite controversial, right? It does get people interested. Um, so hopefully it's got your listeners interested as well. So I started the talk off with that point And it wasn't really a point, you know, just directed at product marketers. It was a point that I was sort of directing at the marketing industry as a whole. And and the reason I felt that way, and I do feel that way today, that we don't really understand our customers is because there's a whole lot of data out there that suggests that marketing just isn't that efficient. So there's data from Rakuten, I think from 2018, and a study they did with with e-consultancy where they found that one-fourth, 25%, of marketing budget is wasted. It gets no ROI. You know, for every $4 you spend, $1 is, is chucked away, essentially. There's another stat from HPR, which I know your listeners will know very well, which is that 80% of new consumer product launches fail. And when you look at these stats, and you also look at things like um, big, big companies like P&G pulling 200 million from their digital ad spend and not seeing a change in demand, you start to think, how good is 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 marketing at, at, at really sort of understanding consumers and, and i have started to really notice that that marketers could do a better job of understanding their consumers and the reason i think that is because when you look at uh, sort of consistent fields that have really good roi that are really good at not wasting their money and, and you know not wasting it and, uh, their budgets and being very efficient so you look at fields like doctors lawyers scientists these people, they don't base their decisions on sort of gut instincts like marketers do. They base their decisions 
on laws. They base their decisions on, on sort of science and then understanding. And my whole sort of theory, my whole sort of idea is that if the marketers make an effort to understand consumers and to really sort of make sense of the world of consumer psychology, we can become far more efficient at our jobs. We can make sure that 80% of new product launches don't fail and we can stop wasting sort of 25% of our budget. It won't make sort of complete change and flip those figures entirely, but it, it can definitely help. Absolutely. I think that you look at some other marketing practices too, whether it's, you know, growth marketing or um, paid media, and they do have some of those, you know, some of those, like, it is more of a science, right? Because they can, maybe they can apply um, statistics and analytics, uh, you know, and these data practices that are like proven and work. Um, but I think you're especially right when it comes to, you know, brand and product marketing and storytelling. Um, you know it when you hear good good storytelling, you know, from a product marketer or great pitch that really resonates. But um, the whole idea of just like unpacking that and breaking it down and trying to figure out like why is, I, I think is super important. It's really important for me and is a lot of what I write and talk about. So excited to dig into that. And then I think that you're, you're spot on that if, you know, if you were creating a product marketer, what skills would they have? Or maybe what would they go to school or university for? Like, I think having, you know, them having some sort of background in consumer psychology would be ideal, right? Because, mm. um, yeah, understanding that yeah, human behavior can give you a really leg up. So why do you think this is the case with product marketing right now? You know, we don't, for the most part, there's, there's templates and there's frameworks and there's things to read, but there's, there isn't this like common law or science in product marketing. Do you have any ideas around like why that's the case right now? Is it just too early for the for the craft or what do you think? Mm, it's a good point, Marcus. I, mean, I think if you look at a lot of companies, for example, the company I'm at, product marketing is not the, it's not the role that you start a marketing team with, right? It's a role that you add and that has been added to, to marketing teams quite recently. Um, mm -hmm. The PMA, the Product Marketing Alliance, have done some great work showing the sheer volume of new product marketing jobs year on year. It's one of the highest growing marketing jobs. You know, it's a, it's a pretty new principle. And although you will hear from legends that have been working in the field for an awful long time, the majority of us are, are fairly new to it. So there's not a lot of experience. There's not a lot of sort of case studies, sort of laws and science for us to follow. And I feel like why I really felt it being in the product marketing role is um, there's sort of two reasons. When you look at great companies that are doing product marketing and try and learn from from their success you sort of realize that one of the reasons they're so great is because they've got you know a big budget or they're, they're a huge brand and they've got great individuals and it's really hard to replicate that and that's one thing that i really struggled with in product marketing is that it really felt every quarter with every launch that we were just trying to reinvent the wheel so to speak mm -hmm. um so i was really desperate to to try and find some more consistent ways to do product marketing and partly through my experience partly through sort of trial and success i found that applying some laws of consumer psychology really helped level up my product marketing now i'm not saying it will do that for everybody but for me it really helped and i think because our jobs as product marketers is to deeply understand our consumers and better market to them I think it makes sense for us to lean on this adjacent field of consumer psychology and apply their work to our, to our sort of our jobs. I, I, I do too. And I think that you already start to see it creep in, in, in some ways just because it makes sense. But I think that if we are intentional about it, 
there, we can we can apply much more to it. I think the thing that everybody is starting to really understand and build into their marketing is social proof, right? That's something that probably most listeners of the show and most marketers, if you said, hey, let's talk about social proof, they would they would have some understanding of it. And that's one of your sort of laws of um, consumer psychology that we can learn from, but some of the others aren't. Um, before we get into those, one question I have for you is that like, you know, there's a lot of inefficiencies and waste in marketing. I think that's a great, I think that's a great point, but why is it so important to have these laws and really develop it in like what, how does it make your marketing better? Mm. I think a lot of the inefficiencies occur because when we talk about a successful sort of product marketing launch or a successful marketing campaign, we really struggle to pick apart the pieces about what really caused that success. It's, mm-hmm. you know, I sort of mentioned it in the talk you referenced earlier. You know, it could be that the sort of one-liner was brilliant or that the, the budget was fantastic or the product market just fit. It's really chaotic and it's almost impossible for us to sift through all of these great things that a launch might have and really conclusively say why, why it works so well. If you look at Basecamp's Hey launch recently, there's dozens of articles on why that's so successful. You'll struggle to find a common theme though, right? A common mm-hmm. sort of one reason as to why that was so successful. And that's partly just the chaotic nature of, of the job. But that's also something that I think consumer psychology can shine a light on. I think if you look through launches with the sort of lens of consumer psychology, you can start to see by applying certain nudges, certain laws to, to marketing that you start to deliver more repeatable uh, uh, results. And I'm sure we'll get into that in a bit. But yeah, I think that's one way that I think marketing can be improved upon is by sort of looking at launches through a different lens, not just the lens of, oh, this is a great launch because it's, you know, it's captured my attention. But oh, no, this is actually a great launch because it, it's really used these principles of psychology to to really have an effect on consumers. Yeah, that, you know, I just thinking about the Hey launch uh, and rewatching your talk, I think it's that it was just different, you know? It was like when you you have all of these companies and brands that are saying the same thing in SaaS and software, if you can come out and kind of say something different and have a really unique point of view uh, on something that everybody knows, like email, you're going to stand out. So I don't know. I don't know what all those other articles about Hey said. And there's some things... I think they did well and, and didn't do well, but um, it was it was unique and it was definitely uh, broke through the noise. So we can talk about that, Marcus, because that's that's a common thing to say, right? That's a common thing to say about the launches. Oh, we have to be we have to be differentiated. We have to do something different. We have to try something new. Um, and there's some science behind that. And like that's just not sort of something you should just say in the marketing team and it's sort of our old wives' tale. There's science that you can back up. So there's something called the Von Resteroff effect, which was figured out by Hedwig Von Resteroff back in 1933. And her sort of seminal study was really interesting. So she gave individuals long lists of letters, sort of random letters combined together. So F-W-G-R-T-Y-U-I-O. And she asked people to remember these random lists of random letters put together. That's really hard to do. But in, pl- in these sort of lists, she would leave three numbers. So two, three, four. And what she found is that the memory, the recall for the numbers was 30 times higher than the recall for the letters. People are far better at me- remembering that because it was distinct, because it stood out. And Richard Shotton, who's a sort of modern day consumer psychologist, has done a sort of updated study on this in 2018. He gave individuals long lists of logos from one industry to look at 
So let's say it's uh, the fast food industry. Look at Burger King, look at McDonald's, look at In-N-Out, look at KFC, look at all of these logos that a lot of people mm-hmm. know, but also some that they don't as well. And then within that, he dropped a logo from the automotive industry. So say Ford's logo. And he asked people, you know, which logos do you remember? And they were four times more likely to remember the automotive logo, the one that was distinct, the one that stood out. And what I find really interesting about this, Marcus, is that this, this is science. You know, if you are distinct within your space, if you're distinct within sort of the thing that you're looking at, you, you are more likely to be recalled, more likely to be engaged with and remembered. And yet so many marketers and so many product marketers as well fail to apply this law. I think if you look at SaaS websites over the last five years, maybe three years, you'll notice that so many of them look identical. Mm-hmm. So many SaaS websites use the exact same animations and illustrations that it's really difficult when you're flicking through a certain competitor set to really remember anything distinct about them. And maybe that is one of Hay's success as they took a slightly different approach to their web page and their messaging and it was a lot more targeted. And that could be one reason. But we know that standing out really works because there are, there's really science that backs it up. So it's not just Schotten's study, but there's also studies by people like Steve Martin who did something like he, he worked with the Australian or I think it was the Irish tax collection scheme. And they found that people weren't paying their taxes on time when they were sending out letters to people. And all he did was add a handwritten post-it note to these letters and suddenly the amount of people paying their taxes on time jumped up by I think 33% or something like that being distinct on the letter boxes sort of went with letters coming through your door really encouraged action same happened in Copenhagen so they had a real problem with litter in Copenhagen um, which is you know a real shame but people weren't putting litter into bins so what did they do well they looked at consumer psychology they looked at the von Restoroff effect and they painted their bins neon and in doing so, 45% more litter ended up in the bins, just applying a really simple nudge to a problem had a big effect. And I think as marketers, we could really sort of think about these effects and apply them. And, and you know, when you look at your website design and you think, oh, I could just add another beautiful cartoon animation, maybe have a think about how you could stand out within your space, maybe have a think about how you could do something different because the science that suggests that that really works. Yeah, and it's a great point too. And I think that the marketer, like, you know, the you as the product marketer, you need to have that, that those studies and those data points like at hand because also what I think happens is that, you know, you could you know, maybe it's, maybe it's people aren't thinking about how they can be different, uh, just to unpack like why this happens a little bit. Uh, maybe it's also that, you know, they come up with an interesting idea. They're trying to differentiate. I think all product marketers natively understand the value of that, but then when the rubber meets the road and they pitch, you know, maybe there's, there's three versions of, of copy or the, you know, the, the positioning or the look and feel of the website that goes to, leadership or to customers and I think things get watered down and I think you know you start to see this like like that herding mentality of everything starting to look look the same and conform to the to the status quo and I think that's when you really need that like this idea that you're talking about and the data to back it up to be like you know like no 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 hey we we it may be kind of jarring at first but like we need to be different and it it's going to make us 30 times it's going to make us 30 times more memorable as a brand, like, like, I think that is the sort of thing that, um, a great thing to keep in your back pocket because, you know, if you're trying to, to sell something internally or do something different internally, it can be challenging. Yeah. And you know, there's so many examples we could talk about here, Marcus, but 
And I think the point that you made about it being watered down and people being risk averse is really smart as well. You, I think a lot of us product marketers will notice that, that when we try and perhaps present something a bit left field, a bit out of the blue, it, it often gets watered down because we're risk adverse. But the, the real solution here is to sort of show the science. So talk about the science behind it, you know, talk about why, you know, there's this headwind for investor off effect. I want to trial it out and then get some data. There's a really amazing study done by um, Heineken, and they looked at their slogan, their marketing slogan. You know, this is something that we as product marketers have to come up with all the time. You know, what slogan do we use? How do we describe our product? And they trialed out dozens and dozens of different slogans in, in a really big study, which went to see which slogan was most memorable, which increased recall. And they did all the sort of slogans you would expect a beer producer to do. So, you know, Heineken, the crispest taste you can get. Heineken, the best lager you'll drink. Heineken. You know, refreshing, delicious, fantastic, you know, all these slogans that we expect to see. And they tried one slogan, one slogan which stood out, it said, Heineken, the beer that makes Milwaukee jealous. <laughs> one slogan which was just a little bit targeted, a little bit differentiated, very different from all of the traditional uh, sort of marketing slogans that had been put out. And that slogan was recalled by 85% of people it was shown to far more than any other variant in this study i think the average for the rest of them was about 25 percent. so by combining a little bit of science a little bit of an understanding of consumer psychology with a test and a bit of data you're able to discover some really fascinating things that you could apply to your brand you know for heineken that sort of gets wasted because they're such a big company that's so risk averse that i don't think they properly ever used hmm. that slogan but for a smaller startup for a SaaS business that could be the difference between you know constantly being a challenger to actually starting to garner market share and and, and really start to lead your industry so is there let's let's put some common language around there is that is is this just differentiation or do you is there a different word that you call this when you when you're talking about this idea of standing out and being different yeah it's not i almost well me or all the consumer psychologists wouldn't call this differentiation because it's not just about being different it's really about being distinct so i don't think we should be looking at our product and our market set and say oh, what can we do that's different from nobody else i think every good product marketer who, who is worth their salt knows that's not the solution it's about finding a way to make your solution distinct and really stand out compared to others. There's a, a great British example. So sorry, Mark, because I'm the first British accent. No, it's great. Podcast. You're talking about Hed examples Hedwig well. von Wusterhoff effect. <laughs> like, <laughs> Philip, these are, these are wonderful. I, I, uh, it sounds very nice when you say it. So keep, keep it up, please. All right. I'll give you a, I'll give you a British example. In, in England, about 10 years ago, we had this huge influx of websites that were doing comparisons. They were utility comparison websites. You, you'll have the exact same thing you go to the site you put in your energy provider it'll or your car insurance provider whatever it is and it will compare your provider to a bunch of different providers and, and spew out possibly the best one for price and ratings and all that stuff this was a really big industry about 10 years ago and there were dozens of different companies trying to get market share what was really interesting for us as product marketers is they all had really similar adverts they all talked about the benefits of their products. They all talked about the problems their product was solving. Are you spending too much on your car insurance? You know, that sort of mm -hmm. ad, you can picture it now. They all talked about the features that they offered, compare multiple different sources side by side, all of that sort of stuff. Problem was, none of them were gaining market share. None of these campaigns were particularly effective. One fourth of their budget was being wasted. And then one company, a company called comparethemarket.com, thought, screw this, let's try something different. Let's try and be distinct. And they created a completely different campaign, which featured a meerkat 
who was complaining because the Meerkat's website, which is called comparethemeerkat.com, remember the company's called comparethemarket.com, the Meerkat was complaining because he wasn't getting any SEO because the Compare the Market company was stealing his SEO. (laughs) And they put this as their ad campaign for about, I think it was a couple of months. And the results were unbelievable. I can double check for you, but I think it was something like they hit their 12-month objectives within nine weeks and they become leaders in sort of search volume within two weeks for the company. And they, they completely rose from a challenger to a leader within the marketplace just by creating a bit of a distinct campaign and using distinct messaging and moving away from some of the messaging that we as product marketers feel really safe using, you know, problem, benefit, solution, mm-hmm. and just trying something that actually engages people more. The really funny thing is, though, one year later, all of their competitors copied them. So now there's sort of opera singers that are singing, telling you about how great their comparison site is. There's all these weird sort of weird, weird, weird sort of adverts. Moneysupermarket.com is another one. You should go and look up their adverts because they're bizarre. And so they just all copied them immediately. And they completely lost that distinction. So it's a bit of a shame. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah they're going to have to go back to the old way to uh, really stand out, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Uh, that's super interesting. And um, yeah, you know, I think they, they figured that out, right? And then they all were kind of racing to do it, bet, you know, differently and, and better. Uh, it's just fascinating how um, the, that mo- the whole market moved that way. Great example. So with distinction in mind, I guess you kind of touched on it, right? It's like you can, you can, it's, it's relatively easy to be like, you know, different uh, and distinct. You could just do something totally crazy that would accomplish that, right? Like we could be it's easy enough to be different, um, but that's not quite the goal, right? Like you want to be, I imagine you still want to be fam- familiar to your audience, um, but you want to be distinct. Is it, is it possible to be too different? And is that jarring, you know, like what's the balance there? I don't know. How do you think about that? I think finding a balance is important. I think acknowledging that these consumer psychology principles, they're, they're nudges, they're not shoves. So mm-hmm. they should have, a small impact on your marketing. And if they use consistently across the board, they can have a really positive optimization. But they're not going to fix your company if you've got a bad product marketing fix. They're not going to fix your product if your NPS is plummeting. You know, they need to be backed up by a decent product. They're not they're not a big shove. So so acknowledging that as well. And then just getting data and testing these things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a company, another another British bank company who's a sort of a challenger bank called Monzo. And they just decided when they were creating their card that they wanted to have a bank card that stood out. So they made it neon coral orange, I think it was. And and that really stood out when people would pay for products. Um, Apple famously created white headphones and used those in their adverts and Mm -hmm. just stood out and it was distinct. And, you know, there's not good studies that back up why that if those are successful and if those were key to success but i think just thinking of novel ways to apply them is is always worthwhile and then if you can get data to sort of back it up that's always useful too yeah absolutely yeah i think i don't i also don't have anything to back this up but i mean i think that there is i think people don't want something people want things that are different and, and distinct and unique and sort of bring them out of the normal you know like kind of snap them out of the the normal conformity of these different spaces, but I don't think they want anything that's uncomfortably jarring, you know, that's like too much. And so I think like you can, as a marketer, you can combine, you know, you can start to like combine things, right? So 
the bank, maybe the, the bank in your example started to borrow ideas from, you know, the consumer marketing world. And so they're sort of saying like, Hey, look, we're still a bank. We're still going to talk about ourselves like a bank, but we're going to have this, like, you know, we're gonna have this orange card that we're kind of borrowing from a different industry. And so it's, so it's not a total, you know, I think that's the sweet, there's some sort of sweet spot there where it's, we're different, but in a way that's familiar, not like, not jarring, you know, or or not confusing. Two guys, Matt and Prince, who wrote a book called Blindsight, and it's and it's a must read. And they talk about marketing that's really successful as being a bit novel, but also a bit familiar. This sort of yin and yang of of having something which is pushing the ball a bit, but also having little elements of it that's familiar. And one thing that I really think about when I think about this, we're, we're talking about Challenger Banks, and, it, and it's, it's similar as a company called N26, a German-based Challenger Bank, and they did a campaign which was very successful in Germany. And it's that perfect mix of being novel and yet familiar. And I think their campaign slogan was called uh, No Bullshit Banking. Mm. So the whole idea is familiar. It was around, you know, a new type of banking, less bureaucracy, less uh, sort of hoops to jump through, less time waiting on the phone to your bank. You know, the typical thing you would hear a bank say. And yet they had this novel part of it which was just a bank saying a swear word. Like, wow, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's pretty novel. No bullshit thinking. And because it was in Germany, they used the English word bullshit. So they were able to put it on billboards and everywhere. And that <laughs> really resonated with people because they're like, oh, this is a bank. Uh, this may be talking about something I'm familiar with and things yeah. that I care about. And the way that is similar to other companies, but they're doing it in a way which is really novel. And I think that's one way. That's one sort of angle you should look for as a product marketer. Yeah, I think I think that's uh, I think that's great advice. And you and you're talking touch on this too. But if you know if you're a challenger, if you're entering into a new space, and you're building a brand and you're building your company story. You just I think you really got to keep that in mind because there is this urge to say like, well, we're new and we're young. And we're trying to break off a piece of this market, perhaps like what should our brand and messaging and story look like and feel like everybody else? You know, I think there is like this safe, like you talking about it earlier. It's like, there's this safety to say like, look, if we just look like everyone else, you know, like maybe people will, maybe we could trick people into buying our, our solution, but uh, way more risky, way more probably terrifying to, you know, to, to have a message that is unique and says something interesting. I just think it really pays off. Do you have any, is there any software examples or um, technology examples that you really love of being, you know, distinct? We, we I mean, we've tried to do it. <laughs> so it's a bit of a bias one, um, but I've seen people in our space try to do it. So, yeah. you know, Brandwatch is a, is a much smaller space, um, but we've, We've been doing a bit of M&A ac- ac- um, activity recently and we purchased two companies, which I think have been doing this in really interesting ways. So one of our one of the companies that have joined Brown, which is called Crimson Hexagon, yep. and they found a really distinct way of talking about um, social listening, which is, is sort of what we do. So we, we, we allow companies to monitor all of the conversations said about them online. It's pretty interesting, um, but that language can get pretty boring. So Crimson did a campaign which was really interesting. And their whole campaign was, what can you do with a trillion conversations? What mm-hmm. can you learn from a trillion conversations? It was a brilliant web page, which answered all sorts of questions you could think about. You know, what's more popular, Nike or Adidas? Bang, we've got an answer. More people talk about Nike. Who's the most popular Game of Thrones character? Bang, we've got an answer. Mm-hmm. Who's the most talked about sort of politician in the French French election? Bang, we've got an answer. And that was a really interesting campaign, which was very different from the traditional benefit feature solution approach that we've been going for. Another example is we've 
there's another company uh, again which has joined Brandwatch, which is called Curiously, and they do mobile online sort of mobile sur- surveys, and they apply a bit of distinctiveness to their sales approach. So when a salesperson goes into a room, what they do is they load up their slide decks and they get their talk track out and they start talking about all the companies they work with and show a big screen of all these brilliant companies they work with. (laughs) People fall asleep immediately. Curiously, sales guys were like, nah, screw this. We're a really small market research firm. We really need to stand out compared to those traditional guys. So they have no slides. They open their laptops and they just say to the people in the room, what question do you want to ask today? What problem have you got? What what question do you want to ask of your consumers? And sort of people are really taken back because it's so different. And they will start thinking of ideas. They start thinking, oh, you know, let's say they're a, they're a pet food provider. Oh, I want to ask, um, you know, whether people prefer cats or dogs. And the, and the salesperson goes, cool, okay, type in a question. Do people prefer cats and dogs? Press enter. And that question gets sent to, I think it's up to 2 billion devices across the world. And there's a big screen. They're showing their screen on with the, on the sort of whiteboard behind them. And you can just see a picture of the globe and that question getting sent to hundreds of people across the globe and it being answered in real time. Wow. And that's all going on in the background. And then that's when they start saying, talking about the product. That's when they start talking about the benefits and solutions. Maybe they'll even drop in a few of the companies that they work with. But they've taken a completely different approach to the sort of traditional sales pitch and did something slightly different, which I know for them has been really, really successful. So, yeah, not maybe classic example, Marcus, but two two examples where I've seen it done really well within my space. No, I love that. But also, yeah, there's some there's some risk in doing that, right? Like, you know, the first time they said like, hey, we're going to abandon the uh, traditional sales pitch here and we're just going to put people right into the product. I'm sure there's a lot of pushback. So I think... Um, not to belabor the point, but in one thing that HubSpot does really well is that we always try to have a very specific point of view on the market and anything that we launch, you know, so we know exactly like the right way and the wrong way. And we're going to give you like our point of view on how this should be done. Um, we take this really prescriptive approach and make sure that, you know, we we're, we're trying to say something interesting and meaningful, even if that does alienate some people, we really want to make sure that we have a, you know, a point of view on how this should be done. And it helps us a lot. You know, I think it just, it gives us that there's always something kind of distinct about taking that approach and just making sure that you have a strong point of view there. So, um, okay. So that's, there's, I don't know how many laws there are, how many, you know, what are, what are the important laws in your mind in consumer psychology you know, if there's a handful of them that all marketers really need to know, I think distinct distinction that we're talking about is super, super important, especially for product marketers, because we're all tasked with trying to figure out differentiation. I think social proof is extremely important just because um, where we're at with kind of trust in marketing and how many options and how skeptical people are today, and rightfully so, um, you know, the that social proof from the crowd or from their friends or, you know, whoever is just really, really important today. Are there others that are super important to you that you think marketers will find really useful? Yeah, that's, I mean, that was the terrifying thing when I started to really study consumer psychology is I thought, (laughs) okay, distinctiveness, I can get my head around that. That that sort of makes sense. I can see how those studies can be applied. And then I realized there's like a hundred of these (laughs) and they're sort of growing at speed. There's, there's so many different, heuristics that consumers fall foul to and there's so many things that we can learn um, and a sort of endless amount of things that we can apply there's sort of updating i had to do to my knowledge so for me 
when I was a product marketer before looking at this sort of thing, social proof, that just meant logos on a website. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought when I thought of social proof. I'll just chuck some logos on a website, chuck some logos on a slide. And it's really not that at all. Social proof is the idea that we follow the actions of others. You know, as cavemen, if we saw a bunch of other cavemen running out of a cave, we run out of that cave Start as well. Running. We don't yes. go further in. And if, you know, <laughs> if you're walking down the street and a bunch of pedestrians are looking into a shop window, you look with them. This is the idea of social proof. You know, you follow the actions of others. And if you want to apply social proof, you don't just put logos on the website. You can do some much smarter things. So as a great example of a consumer psychologist going to a pub and asking, you know, the bartender, you know, what, what's the most popular beer on tap here? And the bartender says, oh, it's, it's this beer. And then he says, do you mind if I put a, a slogan on this beer, a sort of banner on the beer saying best-selling beer? And that just sort of will show to other beer drinkers its popularity. And by putting that one little slogan selling, saying this is the best-selling beer at this pub, sales increased by 2.5 times for that beer and didn't decrease for other beers. So revenue went up overall. So showing people popularity and getting them to follow the actions of others is, is really about social proof. But yeah, as I said, that's just one example. And another one that I think is really important is, is anchoring. So anchoring is the idea that the initial piece of information we see as consumers, but also as, as people, has a, an irrational weight on how we perceive the rest of that interaction or, or whatever it might be. So a great example of this is the placebo effect, right? If you're given a, a painkiller and you're told this painkiller costs 10 cents, you'll take the painkiller and your headache won't really go away because you'll be thinking 10 cents for a painkiller? Mm. That's nothing. Whereas if you're given a painkiller and you're told this painkiller costs $2.50, your headache will actually go away. And this isn't me making up, you know, they've, been, they've proven this with studies. In both examples, the painkiller is just a sugar pill. It's a placebo. And yet telling somebody, oh, this painkiller costs $2.50 will actually help, you know, their sort of headache go away. So they're anchored to that initial piece of information. Another great study, I think, done by Dan Ariely, brilliant consumer psychologist, wrote an epic, epic book called Predictably Irrational. He had a, a big spinning wheel, you know, not dissimilar to the sort of spinning wheels you see on shows, TV game shows. And he would spin, he would ask a participant or one of his students usually to spin a wheel and it would land on a random number from one to a hundred. And then he would ask them a question and he would say to them, you know, don't let the wheel, uh, you know, get involved with how you answer this question. But anyway, he would ask them a question. He would say something like how many African countries are in the UN, something that they're not likely to know. And what he found was that if you had got a low number on the spinning wheel, you were far more likely to say a low number, like five or six or seven. And yet if you'd got a high number, you're far more likely to say a high number. So if you'd hit 80, for example, you're far more likely to say 70 or 75. We are hugely influenced by the initial piece of information that we see. And a a great product example of this, Marcus, is actually from New York taxis. So in 2008, I think it is, the uh, New York mayor said, all taxis have to have the ability to pay by card. We have to move from a cash for society and allow people to pay by cars. And so in 2008, I think overnight, they added cash machines to New York taxis. And before cash, uh, before this sort of happened, people would typically give around a 10% tip to taxi drivers. And yet the cash machine had an interesting sort of inbuilt thing within the product. And it asked, how much do you want to tip? But rather than just sort of leaving it up to the, to the taxi rider, it would give three suggestions. It would say, do you want to give 
20% tip, 25% tip or 30% tip. And that tiny bit of information had a huge anchor on the consumer. It actually resulted sort of overnight in tips going from around 10%, I think right up to 19% for all drives, you know, just because of this anchor, this initial piece of information. I think New York taxi drivers that year made an additional $244 million from tips just because of that anchor in the product. Uh, it's, it's one that's really worth thinking about. And, and we at Brandwatch have applied this to our product marketing. So, for example, we we do in-app messaging within our product to try and get people to use some of our most loved features. And also, we've got a feature called Iris. And customers who use Iris always rank better on NPS. They always are happier. But the problem is not all of our customers use it. So we created in-app messaging um, that would sent out be sent out to people who aren't using this product, who aren't using Iris, and say, our happiest customers use Iris. Our happiest customers get value out of Iris. There's a bit of social proof in there, mm-hmm. a bit of anchoring as well, saying, you know, if you use this product, you'll be happier. Um, and that's had a huge Im- impact on on people using the product. I think 78% of people who have viewed that message who have actually gone out to try that product out. So sort of applying some of these principles, finding interesting yeah. ways to apply them really does basically, what had worked for us in product marketing. You basically put a, uh, you know, a best-selling, a best-selling sign on your ale or whatever, like the pub did, right? It's like, you know, you put your our happiest customers use Iris. It's, uh, yeah, it's really interesting how that can work. And um, yeah, back, back to your point on social proof, I think that is one, I think you're totally right where it's, you know, people may be familiar with the idea of social proof, um, but they don't know about all the different ways that you can use it. You know, it's, it's, it's much more than just seeing logos and associating that with something. It's, it's doing what other people do. And, you know, you can, there's, there's like the power of the crowd. You can use data to say, you know, that there's hundreds of thousands of like a billion a billion hamburgers served is something that, you know, McDonald's does on their sites for social proof. There's customer examples. There's lots and lots of ways to, to bring social proof to life and different types of social proof. So I think it's something that I hope, I hope product marketers and marketers like dive a little bit deeper into all of these things and don't think that, you know, it's this one thing is anchoring or this one thing is social proof. Cause you can really, it's really a lot in here that you can unpack. I guess I have a, some questions around how you roll this out. Like, you know, how do you teach this to your team when it comes to getting your product team to believe in them or other people on the marketing team or leadership? Like, where do you start? How do you roll out some of these ideas? Or is it just, is it just built into your marketing? Yeah, that's a really good question, Marcus. And I don't think it's got an easy answer. Um, it's why I built the podcast and created yeah. the podcast <laughs> in the first place. So little plug for that. And I know we'll talk a bit more about that later, but you know, that's one thing that I would suggest. Um, for me, it was it was really about reading. Um, I just I, I dived into these books and read sort of one after another, and still do today. There's sort of no end to the uh, sort of brilliant wealth of books that you can read to educate yourself. But that's not the way that everybody learns. So um, you've got to find smarter ways to do it. Um, in terms of what we do in our team, especially now with being in remote work, we do a lot of asynchronous sort of rem- remote learning and communication. So. Um, rather than just deciding that I'm going to do an in-app message which says our happiest customers use Iris, I'll create a little video, maybe using a bit of software like Loom, explaining my work and explaining why I think this is the right idea, explaining, referencing some studies and sort of try and level up people that way. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure it's very hard to argue with you uh, at Brandwatch, Phil. I feel like you have an example or some data for everything. I wish that was the case, Marcus. It's so not. <laughs> it's so not. Um, 
so we do a bit of that we do brown bag sessions of course and we'll sort of share that sort of learning i personally though i do think that this is a bit of a problem i think i'm always shocked by how you know I, i'm in fifty thousand pounds worth of debt from a from a marketing degree that i took and and i've learned way more outside of that marketing degree than i did mm-hmm. so i think there's a sort of education gap one of the things i'm looking to do with the podcast is to create a course which can actually within just a few sort of three hours four hours sort of train some of these principles and provide some frameworks to apply them um because there are some some brilliant frameworks out there that the likes of the behavior insight unit in the uk has put together and that sort of thing um so there's no great answer i think the, the typical answer is reading sort of listening putting yourself in a frame mind mind frame to sort of learn about these things and then the other thing is just really build a vocabulary i think one of the toughest things is is being able to explain why you think one way of network is better than another and if you build yourself up a bit of a vocabulary you know being able to reference studies being able to talk about Uh, principles in the right sort of way it'll really help you and your team sort of start to apply these principles yeah i think i think that's great advice um you know trying to get everybody on the same page with these with the the books i think is a really great way of doing it because you you learn so much from reading these books right and there's lots more than you can just get into in a 30 minute podcast or something like that and then also that common language i think is hugely important but also but also just you know thinking about like why this stuff happens. I think that's, I think it's really important too. It's like, it's like the hay launch we're talking about, right? Is that, why did that work? You know, what are the pieces, what are the elements of that that you could bring back to something like consumer psychology, uh, which I think makes the most sense that then you can say like, all right, we, hey, we've got, we've got this science and we've got a common language around it. Let's look at something that worked through that lens. And then I think it really starts to click with people. But also what you're saying around Loom is a good is a good point too. Like we do the same thing. It's just a great tool, uh, but just you, to have something asynchronous, which basically means like, you know, people can watch it whenever they want and you don't have to have a meeting on it to break down an idea that you have. I use it with my team if I'm trying to quickly break down a project, but I think also you can use it as a way to just help people understand like the theory behind the things that you're doing, even if it's something very, some, a very short piece of copy that you put in products. So I love that. Well, we're pretty close to um, the hour. You know, I would, I do, I really do love your podcast. I think it's awesome. Um, you know, I, I need to listen to some more episodes, but um, you talked a little bit about what you're trying to achieve there, but like, you know, who, who are you getting on the show? Um, what do you talk about? Like what kind of topics are you getting into? Love to hear more about it. Yeah. So I describe the podcast as, a sort of espresso shot of, of consumer psychology <laughs> knowledge. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of podcasts out there. Marcus Shields isn't one of these, but these sort of two hour, <laughs> one hour and a half hour. They're sort of like yeah. the biggest lattes you can imagine from Starbucks, and you sort of drink them as slowly as possible. And I think they're really great, they're brilliant for like passing the time and sort of a slow sort of drip feed of knowledge, which I like. But my podcast is the opposite. So it's the espresso shot, so it's yeah. twenty minutes really well cut um, edited down and i get researchers i get marketing experts i get advertising pioneers i get authors on the show and i try and condense their lifetime's worth of knowledge and experience and studies into easy to listen to 20 minute shows and the idea with each show is that you learn just a slightly different facet of behavior science and consumer psychology that you can apply to your work and i'll just give an example because we did one recently on on scarcity so scarcity is the idea that you know Mm. if you if there's a a limited resource it's more attractive to people 
and I think my favorite study of all time on this is a study around soup sales in supermarkets. So they had two slogans for these soup sales. One was just buy soup in a supermarket. And you know, it's like marketing 101, right? Just buy soup. Mm-hmm. And it worked. People bought three cans of soup on average when you put buy soup up there. And as marketers, we could all pat ourselves on the back and say, brilliant, great job. But they said, no, let's try something slightly different. So they said buy soup and they put a little asterisk next to buy soup and they put underneath the asterisk limited to 12 cans per person now this should really have no effect on people because nobody was buying anywhere near 12 cans of soups before you know they were buying average three max six seven maybe even eight no one was buying 12 and yet by adding that asterisk they made the resource seem a little bit more scarce a little bit more limited and in doing that they actually increased the amount of soup that people bought from three cans to four and a half cans of soup a really yep. you know incredible increase just by one little nudge so in in one of my recent episodes we sort of delve into that and we also explain how sort of you can apply that to product marketing so we've applied that at Brandwatch and some of the work we do so we were really trying to upsell one of our products products called image insights which lets you an- analyze all of the images about your brand online and we could have just talked about the features we could have talked about the benefits we could have talked about the problems it was solving Instead, we tried a slightly different approach and we just showed all of the images that brands were missing around their brand online. You know, all of the images Mm. of Heineken sort of being used in memes that they had no idea about, all of the images of American Airlines being shared in the negative way that they didn't know about, all of these sort of things. And it was a hugely successful sort of sales deck. Anyway, so that's what the podcast do. It gives you this sort of great understanding of some of the principles of consumer psychology, easy to listen to in 20 minutes, and hopefully gives you some inspiration on how you can apply that to your job. Awesome. Yeah, it's 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 tremendous. People should check it out. Is there um I like this book recommendation to you, Blind Sight. Blind Sight, you said is the That's one. That's the that's yeah, those guys will be on on my podcast in a wonderful of, hopefully months but that's a really good book um and yeah there's heaps of others i don't know if you want me to sort of drop some book recommendations in Marcus. yeah yeah you know you can follow up with um me and i can add them into the show notes but uh if there's anything else you know that really jumps to mind that you're reading right now or um think is super important that'd be great too yeah i think influenced by Cialadini is yep. sort of he's the sort of godfather of consumer psychology and then you and i talked about that one marcus and that's yep. sort of a great go-to um richard shotton who wrote the choice the choice factory i would say that's the sort of modern day version of that work really gives you a great understanding of how to apply consumer psychology to marketing dan ariely's predictably predictably irrational uh, is really really good at just helping you understand why people make decisions same with thinking fast and slow by daniel kahneman um, and then for the sort of more marketing central ones decoded by phil bard and another brilliant book uh, the Behaviour Business by Richard Chataway. There is lots and lots and lots, <laughs> but maybe starting <laughs> with those ones is a, is a good place to start. To we'll have you, you'll read all of them and then you'll come on the show and you'll just tell all of us the, uh, the important bits. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's the idea, yeah. All right, Phil. Well, um, thanks for making some time. It was really, really great to chat. Everything that you're working on is super important. We'll be paying attention. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Thanks. Cheers. It's all right.